This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. The price of keeping that car going is unbelievable these days. Unbelievable these days. It is just, I don't think any of us, quite honestly, ever envisioned the day that we would be seeing gas prices over $2 a litre. That's where we are, though. Uh, Dan McTague is president of Canadians for Affordable Energy. He's a former Liberal MP. Uh, love having him on the show to talk about this stuff. Dan, how are you this morning? Well, I'm fine. I'm going to walk this morning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, smart man. Uh, look, th- th- this, I'm not saying anything that everyone else hasn't already said. This is insane. Yeah, it is. And you are now this morning uh, at many stations, 209.9, exactly where we would be uh, before the May 2-4 weekend, as I predicted a couple of weeks ago. But this, is, uh, this isn't just something that happened now. This has been a a uh, story that has been in the you know in the uh, in the making now for the past several years and uh, it's all come together in a way that I think has shocked a lot of Canadians um I know you and I have had these discussions before Scott but I I did sort of suggest to people that you know like it or not if you keep down this road of blocking pipelines um you know you refuse to produce enough energy to meet your own needs um the world uh, uh, continues to to see uh, you know a resurgence in in demand. Fooling around with supply is going to have uh, long term negative consequences, especially for a country like Canada that can be both a solution, not just to to you know the higher prices, but a solution to uh, what now appears to be a global energy and security crisis as a result of our uh, I guess our short sightedness and not producing enough energy to meet our needs while making this so called transition. But do, does this change anything, though? I'm not. I'm not sure. I see anything changing, even though people are upset and people are poorer. I don't know that I'm seeing anything that's going to change as a result. Well, what's going to change is people's, uh, you know, sort of laissez-faire, uh, you know, blasé uh, approach to, you know, when someone talks about green policies and climate policies. I know. I think we all want to do what's right, but we all, uh, many of us, perhaps, just sort of shrugged our shoulders and said, "It's not going to affect me." It's now starting to affect you, and it's not just, of course, the price price of gasoline. That that'd be that's an easy one to dismiss, uh, especially for those out there that uh, believe that we can wish it away. Diesel, uh, cost of fertilizer, which is derived from diesel, derived from natural gas, uh, oil and gas, natural gas inventories are down. Uh, all of these things are going to start to uh, cast cascade their way through the economy, and as a result, uh, you know, really sap our uh, purchase power, as well as uh, diminish our economic output. Uh, I really do worry that Canada's become less attractive of a place for, for capital, uh, and uh, we're going to continue to see you know industries uh, fall behind, especially after we've been sort of uh, blinded by the light of uh, housing prices, and you know the housing industry has been so mm. you know, spectacular, and for many people out of reach now, uh, the reality, I think, is starting to hit hard that uh, once this industry starts to come under some form of sanity, uh, the rest of the economy is going to show itself to be extraordinarily poor uh, and extraordinarily expensive. And, you know, look, uh, with what you just said, uh, I'm, I'm among those who believe that despite what they might say, certain factions of the federal government are quite quite okay with what's happening here because it fits the goals perfectly to get people off natural gas, to get them off fossil fuels and to push them towards other things. Do you disagree that there are those in power who would be thinking this is actually a pretty good thing? Oh, no, I, I agree with you completely. Uh, you know, this current parliament 
uh, with some exceptions, is replete with people who want this transition. I don't think they expect it to happen this quickly. And now that it has, has happened, they've completely ignored what is occurring in Europe, where you know energy prices have you know skyrocketed, uh, and well before you know Russian troops showed up on the border of Ukraine, this was a serious problem uh, with nations that had put all their eggs in the renewables baskets and realized, hey, when the wind's not blowing and there's no sun, you haven't got any power, and your industries falter, and consumers wind up paying the bill. That's going to happen here in Canada if we continue to allow this allow this idea that. For instance, uh, as some municipalities, I believe yours, said, well, we can just wish away natural gas plants. Let's just, uh, we'll get our, 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 uh, our energy from Quebec, except one problem. Quebec, during the coldest days of the year, borrows energy from Ontario. And so, you know, you have a, a real, uh, you know, you have uh, people living in la-la land, not willing to face or confront reality. And the reality is a very, very difficult one to to, to fathom, but the reality, I think, for many is that uh, this, this country is becoming highly unaffordable uh, and uh, our ability to make ends meet is becoming significantly compromised. And so for, you know, the election of politicians who continue to have these wonderful ideas on how to spend money in order to uh, subsidize our EVs, in order to drive up our electricity costs, our natural gas costs, and now our fuel costs, something is going to break, Scott. And I think mm. it's, uh, the camel's back is now uh, pretty much on the ground. Well, Monday in the Ontario leadership debate, Doug Ford took some heat at one point for the suggestion that he would cut fuel taxes. And I, I look, I don't know whether he's just doing a little bit of performance art to try and get people's attention or what, but I, at this point, I can't believe that that's not going to be an idea that people are really going to listen to. Well, they can ignore it. Um, but, you know, you got a federal and provincial government that are raking in at 90 cents uh, above where you were this time last year raking in respectively the provincial government the federal government uh, three to four billion bucks a piece now if you think that's cool and that's fine and that we can go spend it on you know uh uh you know whatever social program is out there good luck with that because our social programs are themselves also becoming you know questionable as, as, as to their viability if people have no money uh people pay less taxes people do less ac- economic activity it, it tends to go around i suspect that what the federal government has to do here and it's not the provincial government that can be the solution is uh rebate some of that money i know i did it 20 years ago when i was an mp for the federal government um i think it's time that the federal government remit the money that it's uh it's basically uh uh skiving off canadians and i i suspect that uh, in these high prices, much of which they could have prevented by, you know, not killing pipelines, we would have had a stronger Canadian dollar and we could have at least provided some, uh, you know, some uh, some force, some economic force that would have driven down oil prices by providing an extra 2 million barrels that the world desperately needs today. With all of that, if the federal government still thinks that we can wish these things away and uh, pretend that uh, fossil fuels don't matter and that they'll be gone in, you know, uh, in their timeline of seven or eight years, then I suspect that they should uh, be cutting checks to every Canadian because it's really our money. It's not theirs. It's ill-gotten gains. And mm. the sooner that they do that, I think the better. But uh, at the same time, uh, for a country like Canada, blessed in the abundance of resources the world desperately needs, it's uh, it's not just a crying shame. It's an absolute uh, aberration of, uh, of, of leadership uh, in this country to allow uh, our energy sector to uh, to be uh, to be uh, you know whipped like this, and it's unfortunate that uh, Canadians uh, up until now, especially us here in Ontario and here in the GTHA, have been willing to go along with this nonsense.
Uh, we got we got 15 seconds, Dan, but I'm just wondering, you've suggested that these $2 prices are going to be lingering through most of the summer. Once that happens for a while, once it's around that mark for that time, does it normalize these prices so that we get used to it and we expect this even into the fall, they can keep them here? I think so, but it also means that everything else gets sacrificed. People won't cut back on fuel. They'll have to cut back on food and other things that they'll be doing this summer. By the way, yeah, Scott, it drops three cents tomorrow, so take advantage of it uh, for what it's worth. That may be the last time we see those kind of, that kind of uh, aberration <laughs> or that kind of quirk uh, in, uh, uh, in, in what is otherwise a trajectory that shows prices going north, especially before the uh, kickoff of the mm. uh, summer Lucky us. season. Lucky us. Dan McTague, President of Canadians for Affordable Energy. Always appreciate the time. Thank you for this. Good to be here. Thanks, Scott. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. We know that uh, travel has reopened or is reopening. People are clamoring to get going places. They've been cooped up with the pandemic for so long. We know there's a demand for this. We know there's a hunger for this. But it seems as though things are not exactly going smoothly. We're hearing reports of long lineups at airports and delayed flights and extensive wait times for everything, security and everything else. And it's leading, again, we're told, to a lot of short tempers and a lot of people saying, uh, should I be bothering? Is this going to make people think twice about traveling? And is there a way to fix this? Or is this just our new reality? Amberish Chandra is the Associate Professor of Economic Analysis and Policy in the Department of Management at the University of Toronto Scarborough joins us now. Thank you for the time today. I appreciate this. Sure. Happy to be here. So many people we know were just chomping at the bit to get traveling again once they were allowed to do this. this it, these reports we're hearing, and maybe it's anecdotal, maybe it's more than that, but this really sounds like it's taking some of the joy out of the experience and making people wonder if it's time yet. Yeah, I think that's definitely the case. Uh, I think people, like you said, envision being you know, on the road or away, uh, traveling, seeing family and friends, and they didn't really envision the whole you know, frustrating nature of airline travel, which is frustrating even before the pandemic, but it, it does seem much more so now. And, and you know, airline, and we'll get to that for sure, but everything too. I mean, we talked earlier in the show about gas prices. That's doing nobody any favors. But one of the big issues here is it seems that a lot of this seems to be coming, we're told, from border issues that you, you, to cross the border now, you need to fill out details on the Arrive Can app. And if you've done that, and I know people who have, things can move pretty smoothly. The problem is if you haven't, and a lot of people don't seem to know you're supposed to do this, boy, it seems to grind right down to a halt. And, and so it seems like the immigration process is one of the big issues here. Yeah, I mean, we're seeing long lines and delays, uh, both for domestic and international travel. But you're right that um, international travel does have this, you know, added layer. I mean, for one thing, you also need to be, you know, processed by a customs agent and they're in short supply right now. Um, there's just a tight labor market. But yes, even if that weren't the case, um, you know, people coming from abroad have to fill in the ArriveCAN app, uh, sort of pull it up on their phones, have it ready to show. And all these things add, you know, a few seconds here. I mean, Pearson Airport suggested add something like a minute and a half to each passenger. And so you can imagine over... You know, big plane, hundreds of passengers, yeah. that's a long, long time. Yeah, and and you know what, traveling, they, they, what's that old line about getting there is half the fun? I'm not sure that's really been the case for a long time, but you add this to people now, it's just, it's stress and it's frustration. And again, I, I think a lot of people might just say, what am I doing this for? What am I doing this for? Yeah, I, and you know, what's unfortunate is to the extent this is happening in Canada when, you know, either... 
yeah, foreign tourists sort of that's their first experience when they come to Canada or you know fellow Canadians when they return after a nice vacation that's the last thing they remember about that trip it's not great um, you know it's something that the government really should to the extent they have control over this and you know to some extent they do it's something that they should really prioritize because it sort of makes the entire travel experience you know feel sort of less um, valuable um, and I think it contributes to a lot of frustration. Well, one of the things people are pointing out, and look, I, I don't know whether this is fair or not, and I'm being truthful. I, a lot of people are pointing, we go to other countries and we don't have these same issues. Has, has, is the government, are the governmental rules that have this in place, are we looking at these saying, you know what, it's worth the delay because they're being extra cautious for COVID and we don't want to have any problems? Or are is there some blame to be had saying, you know, if every other country seemingly has been able to figure this out and loosen things up a little bit, maybe it's time for us to do the same. We are, Canada is clearly an outlier now on this issue, um, on the issue of having to fill in a dedicated app and show proof of vaccination. Canada is one of the last countries in the world now that requires it. Um, we've thankfully dropped the testing requirement, which the U.S. still has in place, but no other country has that any longer, uh, although we were late to drop that too. But yeah, this, the, the, you know, the app and the proof of vaccination were one of the last countries in the world that, that still has this. And it's, at this stage, it's, it's not really looking like it's, you know, it's doing anything to sort of address um, the underlying causes. It's, it's, you know, it seems like it's a holdover from basically pandemic era rules and regulations. So why do we have it still? I mean, that's not, it's obviously not your decision, but why do you think we keep this if most other places are getting rid of it? I mean, I think I've written about this extensively. I think throughout the pandemic, you know, we've been cautious and I think that's helped us in, in many ways. But we've, the flip side of that is we've been extra slow in rolling back regulations, uh, whether it was, you know, eliminating quarantines for vaccinated travelers, whether it was allowing foreigners to come to Canada in the first place last summer, uh, whether it was eliminating the testing requirement and now eliminating the vaccine requirement. It's just at every step we've taken way longer than we should have, weeks longer after the experts themselves said, look, these are no longer required uh, and nobody else is doing them. So I don't know whether it's just a layer of bureaucracy, some sort of inertia in government making decision making. Um, you know, it, it's, it is a, at this stage really quite baffling. And there is one other thing that, you know, it's it's tough because so many of the costs of traveling right now, companies, airlines, cruise ships, hotels, they lost tons of money during COVID. They're trying to get people back, and but they also have to make some of that money back. It's not cheap to travel right now either. You might think there'd be all kinds of deals out there to get people going. It's not necessarily the case. No, that's right. I mean, the, the high fuel prices, like you alluded to, doesn't help. Um, but yes, uh, I think this is frustrating for many uh, companies is frustrating for airports and airlines and often a lot of their staff are being blamed for things that are not under their control because you know passengers are just frustrated uh, but yeah it's 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 uh, it's difficult for everybody else who's sort of dependent on tourism i've written about this recently uh the tourism related sectors in canada have been the slowest to recover from the pandemic um all other sectors have pretty much recovered or wow. even you know exceeded where we were uh, but tourism related sectors so you know hotels restaurants uh, tour companies cruise ships Airlines, uh, I mean, many, many businesses in Canada are dependent on travelers, whether it's domestic or international. And they're absolutely they're you're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. We in Canada for the last couple of years, maybe more, I've kind of lost track of time. Um, when we legalized cannabis, we, I think the government, I think a lot of people assumed, well, this means it obviously 
is benign. It obviously can't hurt you. It's obviously completely safe. Well, maybe, maybe that's the case. But there's a new study out that uh, the headline on it is marijuana increases risk of premature heart attacks. Uh, This is talking about people who are, I think, regular users. want to bring in Dr. Mark Chandy, who was uh, the first author of this study. Uh, He joins me now. Thank you for doing this. Really appreciate it. Oh, thank you very much, Scott, for the opportunity to talk about it. So uh, let's go to that point first before we get into the study. This has been something that since it was legalized in this country, I think, and maybe I'm misinterpreting, but the perception or the assumption is, well, if the government has legalized it, it must be safe. It must be okay. There must be nothing wrong with it. Is that, is that simplifying what's really out there? I, I think that's a, that's a fair assessment, um, you know, because uh, it was something that was illegal, it was very difficult to study. Um, so I think the belief was that uh, it could be harmless or perhaps even beneficial. Uh, but until, until very recently, it hasn't really been studied uh, rigorously to figure out if it's something that's bad for uh, cardiac health. Okay, so this study that you've done, and and correct anything that I say that's not accurate, but reading from the story about this, um, the frequent cannabis smokers are more likely than non-users to have their first heart attack before the age of 50, and also carries a risk of subsequent heart attacks or heart failure. That, that, That doesn't sound too good. I mean, why is this happening? That, that's absolutely right, Scott. Uh, for people who are um, moderate or heavy users of uh, marijuana, um, we uh, we find that uh, actually all users are more likely to have heart disease and heart attacks. Um, however, we also do find that uh, people who are young under the age of 50 are more likely to have heart attacks if they use marijuana um, than those who do not. And are we talking about someone who, you know, on Saturday night has one joint or are we talking about someone who's a consistently heavy user here? So uh, in our study, we used data from the uh, UK Biobank, and we basically looked at people who used marijuana more than once a month. And, uh, and, and that, that is something that I wouldn't uh, necessarily categorize as heavy use. But, but I think that even within that group, we found that there was uh, uh, more heart disease. So there, there has to be a reason for this. Do we know, I mean, besides finding these numbers, do we have any good idea why this would be the case? Well, yeah, no, that's, that's an excellent question, Scott. Um, we took a very deep dive and uh, we used a, a special type of uh, stem cell to make vascular cells uh, from the human body. Uh, and we studied the effects of THC, that's a psychedelic component of marijuana, and we found that it actually caused inflammation, uh, oxidative stress, and atherosclerosis, that's the uh, uh, process of uh, plaque buildup um, in, uh, in mouse models. And so using these uh, vascular cells and mouse models, we found that um, we could basically cause vascular damage, inflammation, oxidative stress, uh, and uh, plaque formation um, in the mouse models. So it would fit with premature coronary disease and increased heart attacks. So it can, so there's something in it that can lead to the plaque being built up in our veins and arteries. That's, that's right. Um, So uh, marijuana is a very complex substance. It's filled with many cannabinoids and one of them is uh, THC. And that's the, that's the component that uh, gives the psychedelic uh, component uh, to using marijuana. 
but it's actually there are receptors for that in the in the vessels in your that line your arteries and also in your heart um and what we find um both uh, in vitro uh, in the cell culture system and also in the mouse, it causes inflammation, oxidative stress, and, and, and plaque formation, where the you know the where the cholesterol can go in and eventually potentially cause a heart attack. Maybe a ridiculous question: um, the fact that it does this in mice does that automatically mean it does it in people? Like, do we have the numbers of? are we seeing anecdotal evidence that more people now are having heart attacks and then we trace it back? Or is this a, a theory that because it's happening in mice, we expect that down the road, this is going to happen to people. That's, that's also a great question. Um, so um, I think that um, uh, basically we're, we're seeing um, from our data and from other groups as well, too, that there are more heart attacks. Um, and so I think that what we found basically was that not only was there, um, uh, we understood we, we basically dissected the mechanisms of how it is uh, THC causes heart attacks. Um, and we also found a, a new compound that could effectively prevent that. Um, it's a, it's a naturally occurring uh, soybean derivative called genestin. Okay. So, so you could, you, we could possibly offset the, the, what be the damage that's being done to this. That that's absolutely right. Um, so uh, we found that in our, in our mice, uh, basically, if you took uh, genestin, it's a soybean derivative, a soy beverage, at the same time that uh, we administered THCs to the animals, um, we're, we, we would see decreased uh, damage to the blood vessels and decreased plaque formation. Um, so it's, uh, it's something that needs to be tested, I think, in, in, in human trials, uh, but in clinical trials. Uh, but basically, we've we found something that can effectively block um, the bad effects of uh, THC and marijuana, at least in our in our preclinical trials. I, I'm not sure that the users of cannabis are going to be lining up to take a soy beverage while they're, <laughs> while they're smoking. <laughs> but, you know, who knows down the road if it turns out that it, it helps your health. Um, this is not, as I understand it, though, it's not exactly the same, but there are there is at least one other study that has found something similar about heart problems, right, with cannabis? Um, yeah, that's uh, exactly right. Um, there is a recent paper that came out um, uh, by DeFilippis um, in uh, in Jack uh, in 2018, late 2018, I believe. And uh, um, I believe uh, they're part of a group out of Boston and uh, Deepak Bat uh, was also on the paper as well, too. And um, they're a prominent cardiovascular group. And they found that um, in young people um, who presented with heart attacks, um, there are more likely uh, there is an association a link uh, between using marijuana and heart disease. And actually, in their study, they found that if you were to take marijuana, the likelihood of you having a heart attack was actually higher than if one were to smoke a traditional cigarette. Huh. Uh, Interesting. No, and, and I, I mean, I had read another one or, or heard of another one. I haven't read through the whole study, honestly. Um, but from the Canadian Medical Association Journal that said adults under 45 who use cannabis suffered nearly twice as many heart attacks. That, that I mean, that, that sounds ominous. Yeah, yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And uh, I think it's just like uh, smoking, uh, you know, at the beginning of the 20th century, um, you know, many people were smoking, and they didn't understand, uh, we didn't really know what the adverse effects were. And then, you know, 20, 30 years later, people started to have lung cancer, um, and then COPD, and then ultimately, they went on to have heart attacks. And, uh, and then now we understand that uh, tobacco uh, can uh, cause cardiovascular disease. And I think, um, you know, if, uh, if we're not careful, uh, unfortunately, that, that may happen again with marijuana. 
we, we only have a few seconds here, but did we legalize? I mean, look, I don't want to be a prude here. Um, did we legalize though before we knew enough about this, or did we have to legalize it so we could study this? Um, you know, I think that's another great question. Um, I think that uh, we did gain a lot by studying it. Um, you know, our study does have a limitation that, um, in you know, at least within our mouse models and our vascular models, um, that we're using larger quantities of marijuana, moderate consumption of marijuana. Um, but uh, but I think that uh, yes, um, I think that uh, we perhaps didn't understand everything about marijuana, its cardiovascular effects. But unfortunately, it's 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 legal now. Um, but uh, I think that uh, consumed in small quantities, it might be okay, but um, in moderate to large quantities, it could have adverse cardiovascular effects. Mm. Very interesting. Uh, Dr. Mark Chandry, really, really appreciate the time today. Thank you for taking a few minutes. Well, thank you very much, Scott. My pleasure. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. It is May, which means it is time not to cut your grass. A little antithetical around here, right? Well... Some of you are cutting your grass and maybe you want to rethink that, or maybe not. We'll let you decide, but we're going to talk about this because it is called No Mow May, which is something that started in the UK and it was people passing on grass cutting, on lawn mowing to help nature out a little bit. How? Well, let me bring in Andrew Holland, who's the National Media Relations Director with the Nature Conservancy of Canada. Andrew, thanks for doing this this morning. My pleasure. How are you this morning? I am terrific, although I must say I feel guilty talking to you because I have freshly mowed grass. But you know what? I'll, I'll re- we'll talk about this and decide whether to cut it again. Uh, why? <laughs> why? What is no mow may and why would we not cut our grass? Well, it was an initiative that started in the, in the UK, uh, as you said in the intro. And basically the, the effort is to try to help pollinators who have a tough time finding food sources in the spring and so uh over the last couple of years uh nomo may has come into canada and has really grown in popularity in a lot of municipalities across the country and so and when you say it's really grown i mean is that uh, some people will have never heard of this before other people know exactly what we're talking about um if you're driving around are you seeing evidence of people not do uh, people well not doing it or doing it however you want to describe it are you seeing signs that this is catching on absolutely there's a lot of people that are that are leaving their lawns get a bit shaggy <laughs> right now uh, <laughs> lots of crops of dandelions now in my own personal case i had to mow a part of it because uh, i live on a corner in a subdivision and it if it looks really shaggy and if it gets too tall, you just the mower just can't get through it. So I'm leaving some of the dandelions in front of my yard for the, the pollinators, if you will, the ants and the beetles and the hummingbirds and the bees and the moths and the butterflies. But I'm, I had to mow some of it uh, just because it's it's the, the part that's facing a lot of uh, it's, it's facing the road. and it's, it's really, really tall. Yeah, I, I, it's it's an it's a it's a wonderful idea. It's also an amazing thing for those who just don't want to cut their grass because they don't have the inclination to go. No, nah, sorry, I'm helping the pollinators here. I, I'm all in for the pollinators. It's not got anything to do with me not wanting to get out there. <laughs> oh, absolutely! It's a great way to embrace your inner laziness. The same in the fall with uh, with, with the, just just uh, uh, leaving a layer or two of uh, leaves on the lawn in the fall to help the pollinators as well. That's another thing that people do. 
What and is this? I mean, look. If if you leave your grass uncut for a while, can it have a real impact? Do you believe on the pollinators? I mean, because because I mean, I'm assuming most people's lawns are not enormous spaces. Maybe some people have giant lawns, but for most people who live in a subdivision or may have a small patch, does it really make a difference? It can uh, in some manner. I mean, Canada has over six point two million lawns so if you just take a fraction of those and have people choosing to do things to help pollinators that can be a very good thing Um, but the only thing is uh, the nature conservancy of canada has put out our small acts of conservation uh, tips and rather than just not mow your lawn a more effective way to help pollinators is put native plants and shrubs and flowers in your yards because the evidence shows that those are the first food sources that pollinators actually go for they don't Mm. go towards they don't go towards the dandelions because they're non-native and they're not that nutritious what about the okay so now you've you're doing this you said for part of your lawn um honestly do the neighbors say anything because this is one of the things i was thinking what if i just let my lawn go i'm not sure my neighbors are going to think i'm being a great neighbor or do i have to put up a sign or something saying hey i'm not just doing this to not come out and cut the grass there is a reason well it depends on where you live uh in my community uh it's well promoted in fact the city where i live is leaving a quarter of its lands not mowed because of no mow may and they've promoted it They've got big billboards along river river's edges and riverfront areas that are, are very visible for, for motorists and things like that. They've been talking about it for several months. So it depends on where you live. And I know in some communities they do have lawn signs to give out say, I'm helping the pollinators this month. This is a no-mow May lawn. So it all depends on where you live. But to your point, you may get the stink eye from a neighbor who thinks that you're lazy. <laughs> Uh, and just might think, well, what, you know, well, what are you doing? Are you just taking the month off? And, and uh, Because other people think their lawn should look immaculate, like a great big thick carpet. But the Nature Conservancy of Canada, from our perspective, we feel the most effective way to help pollinators. It's great if you don't want to mow your lawn. It doesn't hurt. But the more uh, helpful thing to do for pollinators year-round is by just put have a, just have on on your lawn like a, either a flower bed, a garden bed, even on your deck or your balcony. If you live in a condo or a, an apartment building, you don't have a lawn to mow. Put a native plant or a shrub there. Yeah, that yeah. can that can, that can help pollinators for six seven months a year rather than think about it for for one month. You know, as you were talking, I almost thought, you know, it's probably none of my neighbor's business, honestly, but you know, if you, you have to live next to these people, this, this sounds like, you know, for a lot of people, it's going to be a great idea, but maybe one of those things to just go knock on the neighbor's door and say, by the way, is this going to drive you nuts if I do this just to, you know, just to keep the peace in the neighborhood? Yeah, that that's not a bad idea because education uh, can help, but this depends on where you live uh but it's been on the radio literally the last two years and in many parts of canada Uh, our organization uh, has promoted it but we promote it with the caveat that it's just the start it's great if you want to do something there's no problem with it if you want to help pollinators it's just that dandelions are non-native and they're not that nutritious and the pollinators whether it's the ants uh the 
the hummingbirds, uh, the moths, the butterflies, the, the different kinds of bees, they actually don't go to the, to the, their food of choice, so to speak, is the native plants and the shrubs. That's what the evidence shows. It's not necessarily the dandelions because they're just not as nutritious. So keeping that in mind, our recommendation is go to your local nursery or garden center and find out what local native plants and shrubs may work best in your community based on the soils that you have and maybe place those in, in a in your yard, a flower bed, garden bed, or like I said, if yep. you live in a, in a in a condo or an apartment building, use a part of your deck or your your, your balcony. Yeah, you can do something. You can do something for sure. Andrew Hall, a National Media Relations Director with the Nature Conservancy of Canada. Thanks for the time today. Really appreciate this. My pleasure. Thank you. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. I have a question for you. Um, it's going to sound a little odd, but let me ask it anyway. What do you do in the bathroom? All right, it does sound way too odd when I say it out loud. The reason I ask this question is because NordVPN has asked people what they do in the bathroom, but not necessarily in sort of some sort of weird way. They've asked you whether you take your cell phone into the bathroom with you, and it turns out you do. At least a lot of you, at least a majority of Canadians, almost two-thirds, take their phone into the bathroom with them is this a bad thing? I don't know. Is it a weird thing? I'm not really sure. Let me bring in Patricia Chernoskite, who is Nord's VPN with NordVPN. She joins us now. Thank you for the time today. I really appreciate this. Hey, thanks for having me. And I hope I got your last name correct. I'm, so, I'm sorry if I didn't. No, that's great. It was great. Thank you. So 65% of us take our phones with us into the bathroom. Is that strange behavior? <laughs> well, I mean, uh, it depends. But to be honest, uh, it's it's quite uh, normal. So uh, NordVPN actually looked at uh, various countries. Uh, so, for example, USA, America, uh, Australia, the UK. And uh, um, actually, Canada is uh, at 65%, as you mentioned. Uh, for example, USA uh, take their smartphones uh more often uh, to the bathroom. So 70% of the Americans uh, admit to doing that. Um, Spain is the absolute winner, um, about 80%. Uh, so actually, um, we can draw the uh, conclusion that, yeah, it's pretty normal. Everyone does it. I mean, I suppose, really, it's just a modern version of taking a magazine or a book into the bathroom, and we all have done that in the past, right? I mean, it's just it's modern technology just changing what it is we're carrying into the bathroom. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, uh, we didn't used to have this technology that would allow us to carry the whole world's knowledge and entertainment <laughs> in our pockets, right? So uh, so now we're just becoming more and more connected. And yeah, you're right. It's just upgraded version of a book or magazine. Sorry, it's when you were saying it, I was thinking we've taken the entire world's knowledge into the bathroom <laughs> with us. There's something odd about that uh, sort of a, a strange thing. But it's uh, Okay. But we it, can, but we it's can read up on anything. If you are interested in learning about nuclear physics while you are sitting on the john, hey, you can do that now. You could you could you know work towards your PhD while doing that. Uh, but do we know? Okay, so people take their phones, and I assume, and I, you know, it's always a dangerous thing to do. I assume I could guess what people do with their phones when they're in the bathroom. But do we know what they're using their phones for when they're there? 
Yeah, we do. So we asked uh, we asked people what what exactly they do, uh, and Canadians admitted that um, most of their time uh, is spent scrolling through social media. So sixty percent of uh, people admitted to scrolling uh, through Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and so on. Forty uh, percent uh, admitted that uh, they they just play games, various games, you know, Candy Crush, whatever, <laughs> while <laughs> while they're in the bathroom, and then thirty five percent. Uh, are uh, getting on that knowledge quest. So they're reading or listening to the news and uh, educating them themselves, basically. I, I'm almost scared to ask, but did any percent say they were having phone conversations while they were sitting there? Uh, yes, they did, but uh, it, was a, it was a small percentage. <laughs> oh, thank goodness. Oh, thank goodness. I, I'm, I'm sorry. There, there's something, you know, do whatever you want to do, but there's something kind of off-putting to imagine that I'm having a conversation, you know, with you right now. I don't know what you're doing. You could be in the bathroom right now. I wouldn't know, but it's kind of a weird thing to think about it. Or me, you know, I could be doing this show from the bathroom. I'm not, but I could be. It's all very strange. Exactly, exactly. I mean, you know, we're becoming more and more connected. Internet's becoming this huge part of our lives and allowing us to, yeah, to do things from basically anywhere. So, yeah, it's pretty amazing when you think about it. <laughs> when this study came out, uh, there was a quote in the release about this. And I got to ask you about this because it sounds a little ominous. This is from uh, one of your digital privacy experts who was quoted. He says this, he or she, I'm not sure. Even though the majority name smartphones as the device that tracks their online behavior the most, Canadians still haven't developed good cyber habits to protect their online lives. And the fact that this quote was put into a story about people taking their phone into the bathroom with them, is there something about our phones and tracking us in the bathroom or something like that that we should be concerned about? Yeah, so overall, uh, we uh, we did this uh, fun uh, study um, to actually get people's attention to cybersecurity. And, you know, uh, as, as, as you just uh, quoted, uh, there's there's tracking, uh, of course, uh, used for uh, advertising purposes and so on. Uh, but there's also much bigger threats, uh, for example, malware and, and viruses and, and so on. And the more and more time we spend online, um, the more and more we should be uh, aware of these cyber threats and the more we should uh, know how to protect themselves. But what we see actually is that we don't, uh, we don't see this. So even though people spend more and more time online, uh, they, their cyber knowledge does not increase. So that's why we're really trying to educate people that no matter where you are, if you're using your phone, you know, at work or uh, in the bathroom or living room, whatever, it doesn't matter. You should still be aware of cyber threats and you should know how to protect yourself against them. Yeah, you know, the one thing, seriously with this, because, you know, I'll admit, if you had asked me in the poll, I, I, I've taken my, take my phone in, I, I, you know, I don't know whether that makes me a better person or, or a worse person, but, but I'm, the one thing that always I sort of wonder about is, boy, I wonder if anyone could ever tap into the camera in my phone somehow with any of these things. That's the one area where I would go, boy, that, that kind of freaks me out a bit. Yeah, so um, it, it, it is possible. However, it, it is a very uh, complicated and big, um, you know, cybersecurity issue that would, uh, uh, it would be a really complicated piece of malware. And it's, it's, it's not that common. But uh, of course, uh, hackers and, and cyber criminals, they're, they're not sleeping, you know, so, so there's various kinds of different, different threats. Um, so yeah, that, that is possible, but it, it is a complicated 
complex cybersecurity um, issue that you would have on your phone if that happened to you. Mm. Every time I have this discussion, I feel like I'm talking with George Orwell, but uh, hey, it is the world we live in. Uh, Patricia Chernoskaite from NordVPN. Thanks so much for the time today. Really appreciate you taking a few minutes. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Day four, I guess, of the CFL strike of 2022. Yeah, because Sunday is when they walked out, right? On the first day of training camp. Yeah, you know, uh, I was kind of hoping that after COVID cost us a season and then shorten another season that things would have moved smoothly in the CFL world this spring. But alas, not to be. And so yesterday there were 65 Ticats and some fans milling, rallying, gathering outside Tim Horton's field to show support for each other and for the cause. And uh, among them... A guy that is a a friend of this show, a friend of everyone in the city of Hamilton. I don't think there's anybody in the city of Hamilton that doesn't like this guy. I really don't. In fact, there is a municipal election coming up in October. I bet if this guy put his name in for mayor, there'd be a lot of people who would cast the vote. Peter Diakowski, former Ticat, former Jeopardy contestant, former political candidate, now involved with the CFLPA, joins us now. Future Mr. Mayor, how are you? Don't let my wife hear you say that. (laughs) You could do it, right? Canada's smartest man. That that gives you a leg up on the mayoralty race. Again, don't mention that to my wife either. She'll provide <laughs> many contradicting uh, examples. So you're saying that if I was to refer to you as Canada's smartest man around the house, that there might be a, a pushback? You, know, you would hear some uh, some exaggerated stories. <laughs> So, Pete, I got to tell you, as I said off the top, um, I think myself and an awful lot of people were hoping that uh, once the training camps got rolling, that after a couple of years of no football or partial football, that, you know, this thing would get rolling and we'd be on to picking up some, some momentum. That that hasn't happened. What Obviously, the league wants it. You guys want it. What's your level of frustration and or optimism that this is going to get done soon? We're extremely frustrated with the league right now. Um, you mentioned it's day four of the strike since we walked off Sunday. It was really the league who walked off Saturday evening, five o'clock. They got up and walked out of the bargaining room and left us when we were expecting to go through the night and hammer out uh, a deal. The, the approach that they've taken has been very aggressive and we're in a situation where we still don't have anything that we could take back to our members and expect to get ratified, let alone something that's satisfied the priorities that they they sent us on the bargaining committee in with. It's it's frustrating. Guys just want to play ball. Like we were out at the stadium yesterday, and these you know, the, the players did a wonderful job of of you know showing their case and 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 laying it before the the public and, and rallying support, but they'd rather be playing football. That's what they, they came up here for. They didn't come up to go on strike. And, you know, we didn't, um, we didn't have all the players fly in to go on strike. It, it just, as I look through this thing now, I mean, look, everyone wants to be optimistic, but some of the issues that it seems, and if I've got any of these wrong, correct them for me, but revenue sharing Canadian ratio, salary increases, uh, rehabilitation, compensation. These are these are big issues that still remain outstanding. This doesn't sound like the kind of thing that you sit down and in 10 minutes someone says, okay, I'll give you all that. This sounds like there's a lot of work still to do. 
we're, we've made progress on a, on a number of issues, and, and bargaining started out in a promising way. We we use an interest-based bargaining format. You know, I, I'd say it's very modern. It's it's not its its current use is probably a few decades old, but it's you know newer to us. And we made some progress, but then when the the big issues came up, we went back to you know traditional positional-based uh, bargaining, and that's that's where that's where we are right now, and, and we're seeing the the league very resistant to even modest um, uh, modest improvements in conditions for uh, for its workers, the players. We're in an era of massive inflation. I don't have to repeat to anyone on the show what's going on. You can see what's going on in the world when you drive by a gas pump. Every single other other cost the the teams are exposed to has gone up w- with inflation. We've seen the the buying power of a player's earnings. Uh, shrink uh, over over time since since 2019 rapidly, and the fixed increases in the cap that we're asking for don't even track what we're expecting uh, with inflation. Not even close. It's it's remarkable how reasonable we're being, and and that's still uh, nowhere close to what the leaks put on the table so far. It's it's really frustrating. And if they see us as a cost, well, every other cost goes up with inflation. If they see us mm. as partners, we're not getting treated like partners. One of the really interesting things that I've seen in this is uh, over the last number of days, there has been a series of social media posts by the MLB Players Association and NHLPA and NFLPA and all the other professional sports leagues. I mean, even some that are, you know, down the pecking order a bit, they've all, obviously it's an organized thing to get them to show their support, but they've all come out and shown their support for you guys. Do you think that's going to be helpful? Well, it shows not, you know, the support, the, them adding their voice to a growing public chorus, asking the league to come back to the bargaining table with us and, you know, work out a deal. That's, that's, that's very helpful. And of, you know, helping sports fans across the, the sports spectrum see what we're trying to accomplish here. But they, they've also given us a lot of help uh, in, internally, you know, over the last um, six Six years, we've made a huge organizational changes in the CFL Players Association, and we, we've transformed and professionalized our union substantially. And that's come from looking to other labor groups. We we, we evolved our governance structure, looking at best practices. Uh, we work very closely with the with the other labor associations. Brian Ramsey, our executive director. Um, it, it is able to speak directly with the heads of the MLBPA, the NHL, PA. We're able to uh, go to uh, NBA, the, uh, the their players' association, the, and the others to talk about revenue sharing models. But we've also had a lot of help from the organized labor sector here in Canada. The USW. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I saw they were out Council, yesterday. Yep. Yeah. The workers came out and supported us, which was amazing. But they, they've given us. A lot of deeper support in terms. Pete, I gotta, of, we gotta, Pete, I gotta jump oh, in because we gotta run very, oh, yeah. very, very quickly. Best guess, when are you guys back on the field? Oh boy, I'm, I'm not, I'm not good at that because if you'd asked me that on Saturday, I've told you Sunday. We mm. want to get back on the field. There's, I don't think there's anything deal breaking in what we're seeking from the league. The, the players want to play, and we understand the financial situation of the league. It's, it, you know, I can't share a lot of details of our bargaining package on the air, but we're being so reasonable with the guys want to play. So I'm hoping very, very soon because we don't want to 
you know, get too close to the regular season with this. Pete Diakowski, always a favorite here on the show. Thanks for doing this today. Thanks. Hey, thanks for having me on. And I got to put a big thank you out to any local members of the United Steelworkers who came out and supported us yesterday. It was awesome uh, for you guys to come out, but it was also great for the players to see the support that we have and that we're not alone in the, uh, run. the labor scene in Canada. Thanks for doing this. Really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.